moments like that where I wish that life had this really big restart button. Like you could just push a button and redo the situation. I had another experience like that. It was a long time ago. I was about 12 years old and I was involved in Royal Rangers. I grew up in a church just like this and um, I was getting my uh, chop card, so the ability to carry a knife. And so my dad bought me my first knife. It's one of those like lifetime movie moments, like dad buys son knife, boy turns to man. It was one of those like big moments in my life. And so I remember I had just got the knife and we were walking down the street and I think it's a good idea to pull out the knife and open a piece of candy with my new knife. Every 12-year-old boy would do that in this situation. Except I don't just open the candy, I just slice my hand. And then my mom is like, I told you you shouldn't have bought him that knife and I was crying. I'm like, I'm not a man, oh my gosh. And it's at that moment that I also wish that life had a big restart button. Have you ever had a situation like that where you wish you could just do it over? Maybe this week or with the coworker, with the friend. You just wish you would give anything to replay and redo what has just happened. Well, my wife and I, we just uh, did a project together. We, we wrote a devotional book and Pastor Stan has uh, let us make it available in the foyer if you're interested. But the idea is restart. And as we wrote this book together, um, it started with a conversation about four years ago in our two-bedroom apartment in southeast Georgia. And we had just gotten married and graduated college on the same weekend. Not something that I recommend, but we did it and we're okay. (laughs) And so it was a busy weekend. But um, we had just moved. I'd just come on staff at a church. And I was working with students. It was a church that I grew up in. And my wife and I, we, we just started talking. And we are in that point of our marriage where, of course, we know each other very well, but we were just learning about the way our families dealt with faith and the culture and denominational influences that we were brought up in. And it all came to this question. Are we following Jesus as described by Scripture? Or are we following a cultural image of Jesus from those around us? I'm very grateful that my wife and I both grew up in a home where spiritual things were talked about, where our parents and family followed Jesus and were a part of a life-giving local church. And we grew up both in the Bible Belt. And so we began to ask ourselves this question, is this a faith of our own or is this a faith that has been passed down to us? Something that we haven't taken ownership of. And we began to continually ask ourselves that difficult question. Do I follow Jesus as described by Scripture? Or am I following Jesus as described by others? Maybe well-intentioned pastors or small groups or books or resources but is the relationship that I have with Jesus personal and real? And that question led us to another conversation and another conversation. And it feels like for several years we were kind of navigating what faith looked like for us. And then with our students, how do we help them have a personal and vibrant relationship with Jesus? And I thought of this story and we kind of came to this idea that in life, we all have situations where we need a restart. But often we don't realize it until it's a little too late. We realize it after the fact. Well, we realized at that moment that we needed a restart in the way that we viewed Jesus. Because for you and I, our framework, the lens from which we view what happens around us, determines our reality. And we realized that the lens we had on was a second-hand version of Jesus. And that we need to know him personally. 
And that's what brought us to this passage of Scripture, which you and I can find in Matthew 13, in verse 53. It says this, When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. So Jesus was on a speaking tour, basically. He was ministering from community to community. And we find out that from this account that he is in this community for the first time on this trip. But this very community was actually near and dear to the heart of Jesus because it was his hometown. I wonder how it felt. He had sat in the seats the entire time listening to local rabbis when he was younger, but now he was actually teaching the very same people he grew up with. And he was sharing through his wisdom, and he was ministering through miraculous powers. So at this point in the text, the crowds have a firsthand experience with Jesus' teachings and with his power. They're amazed. If you and I were there, we would be just as amazed as they were sitting in those seats, hearing Jesus and seeing him move and work with their very own eyes. If we keep reading, it says this in verse 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they begin to wonder, how could the Jesus that we grew up with become the Jesus that we see in front of us? They begin to realize that Jesus, the person they had heard about who was going from town to town performing miraculous wonders, was someone that they actually knew. And they began to question and, and, and talk with one another. Don't we know his family? D- doesn't his brother work at the same place that your brother does? Don't our kids all play together and go to the same school? That's how I pictured if it was in modern day. And so they have this familiarity with Jesus that they stumble upon. And it's interesting because they say, where then did this man get all these things? The people are having a hard time connecting what they see with what they know, with what is in front of them and what they have in their memory. See, they remember Jesus when he was a teenager working, making tables with his father. And now they see Jesus in a completely different light, and they have no way to combine their familiarity and their new experience. And it's interesting that in verse 57 we read, they took offense at him. So that brings us to our first observation. It's that our emotions can't sustain us. In one moment, the people were amazed. And just after a little bit of conversation and a few spaces in our Bibles, the people are frustrated and they've taken offense at Jesus. When it comes to you and I walking with Jesus, our lives as followers of Christ, as Christians, when it comes to spiritual growth and spiritual formation, our emotions can't sustain us. You and I can't rely on our emotions to drive and direct our life. I've been married for four years, and if you've been married for any amount of time, you know that you cannot just rely on the emotions of the moment to make a vibrant and healthy marriage. That love is more than a feeling, but that it's an intentional choice to move in a direction towards somebody's heart. 
We get this. You and I, I think we understand this in our normal day-to-day, that amazement fades. If you're like my parents, they would be so upset because we would want this one thing for Christmas, and we would get it, and the next day we'd be playing with the box. (laughs) Right? Our amazement fades. Or maybe you saved up for that new computer or new car, and you got it, and you're so excited, and you're telling everybody. And then three weeks later, it's kind of like, oh, I I need a new one, or I forgot about that. I remember a story when amazement faded for me. I went to SeaWorld when I was uh, maybe around 10 or 11 years old, and I didn't really like rides, and I don't really like animals, and so I have no idea why my parents took me to SeaWorld, but I put a smile on, and I pretended to be grateful. (laughs) And I remember I was at SeaWorld, and I I was actually caught up in the magic of SeaWorld. There was Shamu, and then Shamu's cousin... And then Shamu's brother, who has a weird thing on his eye. And that's all there is at SeaWorld. But I just got caught up in the magic. I was like, Shamu is amazing. And if you've ever been to Disneyland or an amusement park like that, it's easy to get caught up in the moment. So I was walking through the gift store, and I was like, I need something to remember how awesome this trip was. And so I made what I now call a $55 mistake. (laughs) I purchased the brightest an ugliest SeaWorld backpack I could find. I remember wearing it to sleep in the hotel that night. It was yellow and black and had this picture of Shamu. And, and I don't know if backpacks these days have this, but it had that key thing where you could like unlatch your keys, string, and you can clothesline your younger siblings, which I believe in healing, so it was great. I would just clothesline my brother and then pray for him. Mom, how can I get in trouble for that? I'm just a believer, you know? That was my childhood. That's how I grew up. And I remember I got that backpack and I wore it for all of one day because I remember that I was a dude in 10th grade and you should never wear a SeaWorld backpack to high school. (laughs) I have long since given that away and I've let it burden somebody else. My amazement faded. Your amazement can fade. And it's just what happened to these people in the story. Their amazement faded. When we read this story, it can be easy for us to be confused at this shift that's taken place. They actually get to see Jesus minister in person. They're amazed and they're receptive. And then after a few moments of seemingly ordinary conversation, they feel insulted. They feel offended. And it's because they knew about Jesus. And the Jesus they now saw was different. Something in their memory was different than their reality. And they had a hard time mixing the two. Jesus, as we know, is very aware of the circumstances. And in this particular passage, we see him address the shift that takes place in the room. In verse 57, part B, it says, But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. It's clear that the writer of this passage wants you and I to note something. That the amount of miracles that were experienced here was far less than any other place that Jesus had been on his journey. And we have to wonder why. Why didn't the people have a fullness of experience of Jesus? These people were probably very similar to those in other towns. Needing physical healing. Needing relationships reconciled needing something that was bigger than themselves. They knew that life 
was something more. And Jesus clearly tells them it's because of their lack of faith. I realize in my life, a lot of times I would describe as a desert or dry experience, looking back, I realized that it was most likely not that God had stopped communicating with me, but that I had stopped listening. That it was my lack of faith. And so that brings us to our second observation. And it's that there is a tension between familiarity and faith. The people that we read about in this story, the reason they have a lack of faith isn't because they haven't seen Jesus move. In fact, they just did. It's because they were familiar with what they knew of Jesus. Since they saw him in their memory as just a neighborhood kid, they couldn't accept who Jesus had become. And the same thing is true for you and I. Familiarity fosters a theology based on memory. You and I can remember what God has done and the way God chose to move in our lives. And we can just be waiting for that same type of movement, that same type of power in the same way. And we can miss out on the new work God wants to do today. And I realized that that's probably where I was when I was having that conversation several years ago with my wife, Hannah. That I had such a great experience growing up in the church and I felt very blessed to have a Christian heritage. But that I had somewhat put God in the box and expected Him to move the very same way that He moved when I was younger. And I wasn't open to new ways and new areas that God wanted to move in my life. And so my spiritual growth took a pause and took a stop. This past year I was leading small group in my living room and I was leading with one of our students and we were going through the book of Philippians. And we realized that over and over, Paul speaks to the religious leaders of the day and tells them that people should have accessibility to Jesus. Because the leaders of the day kept putting on these laws and customs and rituals and making them mandatory before people got to see Jesus. And as we were reading this in the semester, most of us were thinking, how could this be? How could someone want to stop someone else from experiencing Jesus? And as we began to study, and as we began to read, we realized something. That the religious leaders of the day were used to the way God revealed himself in the Old Testament. And that when Jesus came, they, some of them added him on to their theology and didn't let him fulfill their theology. And so they still required people to keep the dietary restrictions or submit to circumcision. But all the while, Paul is saying people need to experience Jesus. That there needs to be nothing that we put on people except the love and the grace that Jesus provided all of us. It's a familiarity. You and I can be so used to the way God moved in the past that perhaps He wants to move in a little bit of a different way, in a new area of our life. And if we're not ready, if we're not listening, maybe like me, you can miss it. See, our familiarity works against us in that it can let our experience become the height of our future expectations. I have to remind myself a lot of these lessons, especially as a campus missionary. I have to remind myself that God has provided for us before. And as we travel and speak and share our vision, that God is going to provide for us today and tomorrow and the next day. But God provides specifically for what we need. 
In the Old Testament, sometimes it was this supernatural food that we call manna. Other times it was this very large boat that we know as the ark. At other times he provided through a staff. He even provided once for a prophet through a widow's last meal. And as I think about those things, and I think about the fact that the manna came down and it was just enough for that day and then it came down again. It didn't come down enough for a week or for a month. Or as I think of the other ways God has provided, that we have to position ourselves to let God be God. That if maybe I am looking for an ark when I need some manna, or maybe I'm looking for manna where I need a staff, or maybe I'm so used to the way it used to be that I won't let God move in any other way. That's where I found my life at, to be honest. I had great experiences. I'm not one of those 20-somethings that uh, left the church or, or doesn't like the local church. I believe the local church is the hope of the world. But those experiences can either help propel me to experience Jesus in new ways, or those positive experiences can stop me because I'm, I'm just allowing that to be all that I receive from God. As we continue, I think of one of my favorite stories of Scripture. And it's tied to our third observation. It's that our outlook and actions determine the size of God in our lives. And that's just not something that is easy to think about or to say theologically. But we know it's true from this passage because Jesus says it's their lack of faith that stopped them from experiencing the fullness of himself. I think of my favorite passage in Scripture where there's this woman and she is physically hurting and has had the same ailment for 12 years. I'm sure she's been to every doctor or physician or religious leader of her time. But she finds out that Jesus is going to be in town. And so she goes. And she gets there. And most scholars tell us that when Jesus was teaching in public, there was probably five to 10,000 people following him. And so it was very difficult for a woman that was frail to get to Jesus. I imagine she had to push and squeeze her way through the crowds. Maybe at some point she's crawling on the ground just to get to Jesus. I imagine her finger getting stepped on or her elbow being bruised. But she finally gets to Jesus. And scriptures tell us that she reaches out and touches Jesus' clothes. And at that moment, she's healed. And Jesus says something that's shocking to me. He says that, uh, who touched me? I feel that power has left me. And the disciples aren't really understanding. And then the, the woman, embarrassed, she says, it was me. And so it's interesting that what provided for her healing was her faith. That Jesus says that by your faith you are healed. Amen. Jesus didn't put his hand on her, and Jesus didn't actually know who had touched him because he asked the question. And so we find that she had positioned herself to receive from Jesus. As I talk to students from all over the world, at times it's difficult to address that nuance of how we believe that we've received grace freely but yet we have to do something to receive. And a lot of times I view uh, reception as a passive activity. But my wife, she's probably the biggest college football fan that I know. And so she's got me watching a lot of University of Alabama games 
We're drinking a lot of sweet tea and we're cheering them on. And I know that, man, she's praying for the players. I feel like she's praying against the other players, which I'm like, whoa, whoa, calm down. I don't know if we can do that theologically. I don't know if we can do that. And so she's really into it. And I realize that some of the most athletic and the most disciplined players on the field are the receivers. That it's not something passive, but that they put in a ton of effort and energy just to be in a position to receive. And I feel like the same thing is with our faith. We don't read our Bibles or fast or pray or engage in the spiritual disciplines to get God's attention. He's already given us His only Son. He's already shown us His love. Even from the very beginning of creation, we find out that we're created for relationship with Him and we're created in His image. But we position ourselves so that we can step past the distractions, so that we can move through our own fleshly desires and we can be at a place to receive. In the Old Testament in Ezekiel, it's said like this, that we need to beat a path to God. And I realize that for most of my faith growing up in high school and even early into college, that I really lived off of what I got on Sunday mornings or at youth group on Wednesday nights. And so if you were to chart out my spiritual life or my spiritual growth, it was often like a roller coaster, up and down, up and down, up and down. I was the the student that was on Wednesday night at the altar crying and, and asking for forgiveness and then on the weekends making choices that I wasn't proud of. And it was a cycle that continued and continued. And I realized this, that as we see this woman and we see this community and we see people respond to Jesus, that it's about relationship. And that God can only move in our lives when we are receptive and allow Him because He loves to be desired. He moves in desperate situations when His people cry out for Him. That's what Psalms tells us. And so, I realize that it's not that the church I was at or the youth group I was a part of didn't do enough. It's that these types of communities, events, and resources were never designed to be the primary sustenance that I received spiritually. And I think that's why so many my age, when something goes wrong, if they're at the low part of that roller coaster, they can leave the church so disillusioned, blaming the wrong people. We find out in Ephesians that the church is where we come and gather and we stir up good deeds of love. That yes, we come to receive, but we also come to give and to share. I heard a pastor say it like this, that consistency is always better than intensity. Eugene Peterson says that it's that slow, daily, continual work that moves us closer to the heart of God. But I was living on the ups of youth camp and then and the Royal Rangers and fine arts and all these great things in my experience. But I was, I was being inoculated to the true power of Jesus by getting just enough. I was being vaccinated because I would get just enough Jesus to scratch that religious itch so I would have just enough to not feel guilty but not enough to live an empowered life. It's kind of like when you're at a restaurant or you're walking on the streets like I was in New York City and and somebody is smoking and it kind of gets right in your face and, and you then smell like you've been smoking. That was how I had been with Jesus. I had a secondhand experience. 
The stories that I would tell would not include me. They'd be other people's stories of providence. But I came to a point where I realized that I wanted God to write a story in my life where I could speak personally about His goodness, about His peace, about the way that He loves and cares. Because when you and I hit tough places, when I was in a season where I was very depressed, that second-hand faith doesn't sustain us. I realize that I'm a control freak and that I like to control and know everything. And in a way, it's easier to have Jesus or the Holy Spirit in this box, to have a manageable definition of, of God and the way He works. I can explain it easier to friends. I don't feel as, as weird. There's nothing mystical or supernatural. But when I do that, it's only easier and only beneficial when things are going right. But when things go wrong when a relative passes away, where I'm dealing with depression, where something in the world goes awry, a limited Savior does me no good. I had to come to a place so desperate that I said, Jesus, you work the way that you want to work. I have to expect the unexpected. I had to say, Holy Spirit, I see in the book of Acts a summary, a description of the way community looks like. A group of believers that looked like you and I gave all of their possessions and they just took it as they needed. And we see them praising and speaking in languages that are unknown even to themselves. And when I look at the life that I'm living and the community I'm a part of, and it looks different, I have to ask myself the difficult question. What has changed? The power of God or the people of God? What has changed? The the magnificence of who God is or the receptivity of his people. I realized that a manageable definition of Jesus was a religion built into myself. But when I approach Jesus with open hands and an open heart, to let him do not just what he's done, but whatever he wants to do, that that is faith, hoping that he intervenes in a way that I can't. And that's the offensive thing of the gospel. And when we share on campus, that's the offensive thing, and I understand that, because the gospel says that you and I aren't good enough, and that no matter what you and I do, we'll never be good enough, and that the world is broken and that you and I can't fix it. That's like the starting foundation of the gospel. And then it says that God is in control and that He can save and rescue, and that He always was and always will be. And there's no committee And there's no one that he's accountable to. That he does what he wants to do and we can trust him because he's not only righteous, but he's good. He's not only just, but he loves. He's not only real, but he's relevant. And that's offensive because it says that you and I can't do it ourselves. I came to this point where I needed a restart in my life in the way that I processed faith, in the way that I allowed God to move. I have a friend that was going through something similar, and his name is Toby. He was in my small group this past year, and at the end of the semester, we took time to share what we had been learning and processing and thinking. And he says that when he came to campus at American University, that he couldn't be described as a follower of Jesus, but now he feels like he has a vibrant relationship and 
none of us really knew. We didn't have this moment. And so we were like, Toby, what? You, you became a Christian? I, I, we didn't even know you weren't a Christian. This is amazing. Tell us more. And he began to share about how he grew up in a family where religious services were something that you did on the holidays. And it was a part of his culture, but not a part of his mindset, of his worldview. And it was only when Toby was able to open himself up to experience Jesus, not as described by his parents or his friends or his school or his television, but Toby had a real-life encounter with Jesus as described in Scripture. And like you and I, Toby could not resist the love and grace that Jesus offers. As the worship band comes back up, And we're getting to a point in the message where I want us to take some time to really examine where we're at. I I don't share any of this at a place that I've got it figured out because I don't. But I know that for me, it's very easy, all too easy, to place a lens on my life in which Jesus is very simplified, in which Jesus is stripped of his mystery and we're stripped of the risk. And and I begin to equate the Christian faith to the American dream. But I realize when Jesus talks to the rich young ruler that he's asking for his heart and his possessions were where his heart was tied to. I don't know your story or your circumstance, But I know that probably like me, you're in or have been in a place where you need something more than what you yourself could offer. That you're in a situation that may seem unfixable or impossible. Or maybe, like I was in high school, you would describe your spiritual experience right now as dry or in a doubt. There has to come a point where you and I, we beat the path And we fight past distractions, past difficulties, and even past our own familiarity with Jesus. So that we can never be in a place where somebody could say of us, they didn't experience the fullness of Jesus because of their lack of faith. I don't want that to be said of me because I'm in a circumstance, in a situation where I need God to provide. So I want to pray. I want to pray for you and I want us to take time right now to examine maybe there's an area of your life where you would say, I want God to move but I haven't given Him access. Or maybe you have a need so great that no one, not even a a, a restart button if it even existed could fix it but you just need Jesus. The thing I know is that He responds and hears the cries when we are desperate. When we invite him and turn to him as a solution, he does what he does best. Our messes turn into miracles. But in scripture, that only happens when his people cry out in faith. So I want to pray. Lord, over these next few moments as we spend thinking about our life and our circumstance, that we would do so with the help of your Holy Spirit, that we would consider areas where you want to move. For so long I viewed you as boss or as employer, but I neglected to view your grace. Maybe there's some in here who need to see you as father more clearly. They need a new perspective to see you as grace giver. God, that you would meet us. 
Lord, in these next few moments as we, as the band sings, Lord, that we would honestly come to you and say, have I been following Jesus as described in Scripture? Or have I been following him based on a second-hand experience? Because you want to meet with us personally. God, I pray you'd lead us in this time of contemplation and introspection. God, that you'd move in the family that needs relationships rebuilt. God, that you'd move in the individual that, that needs a financial breakthrough. God, that you've blessed us so we can bless others and that you desire, like a good father, to come to our rescue. God, we stand on the promises of Psalm 73, 26, that even though my flesh and heart may fail, that you, Lord, are our portion and our strength.
of your work on the cross that Lord, there is nothing in the way for us to meet with you personally. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, that God, we wouldn't leave your presence. And that as we seek you daily with our family and our kids, 